The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Children of yours, when we were enemies, you've adopted us, brought us near, accepted us, done more than just pardon our sin, but you have made us heirs of a kingdom and poured out on us even now a foretaste of a vast inheritance that we will enjoy, namely, presence with you forever. An awesome privilege. Along with you come all kinds of material and physical blessings, some of the riches of your glory, but you have poured out on us something better than everything that we can taste and touch and see. Their senses now, at least, you have poured out on us yourself. And for that we say, praise you, praise you, praise you. You have made us family members, children. We get to call you Father. This is an awesome thing. We taste it now. We see it now in, in a little, little seed form. You tell us that we have the down payment of this. We have the Spirit who dwells in us. His presence with us is wonderful. There is more to come. And as we look towards that, Lord, we, we live in the here and now, but how we live in the here and now is, is greatly affected by what we're looking at and you have told us in this passage that we're going to look at today, you've told us some of who we are and some of what you have made us to be and some of what's coming. So I pray, open our eyes to what's real. Speak in power, Lord, and open our eyes to what is real. To who we really are. Your people, your children, heirs with you. Saints before you blessed recipients of grace and therefore peace. Help us to think about these things. Press them more deeply into us. Lord, probably many of us here have some familiarity with these terms and some idea of what they mean, but would you press them more deeply into us and cause us to think about them and to be affected by them and therefore to live differently in light of them. Press identity onto your people here, the identity that is true. And bless us with that. Make us more committed, more passionate, more thoroughgoing worshipers of you for your great glory. That would be good for us. It would be honoring to you, so bring that to pass. Father, by your Spirit here today. Open up the Scriptures to us. Help us to concentrate, to hear what's here. Speak and change us and build your church, we pray. Christ would be honored here. That's our hope. We pray in his name. Amen. The two weeks prior to Easter, we looked at Acts chapter 16 in order to get some perspective on the history of the church in Philippi. We read of how the Apostle Paul, with a small team of missionaries had traveled through what is now modern-day Turkey, had traveled through as God led them here and then there and then back, led them eventually across the water 
into what is Europe, north, the north part of Greece, into Macedonia, to a city called Philippi. Paul and company went there. He's the leading person really throughout the whole story. But as we noted in those two weeks, the emphasis again and again and again falls on God. Yes, Paul and company made decisions and traveled here and there and said this and that, but God is the one who led them. God opened hearts. God cast out demons. God broke open jail cells. God planted his church in Philippi. That was Acts chapter 16. We turn our attention this morning to Philippians proper as we begin our extended study of this book. Philippians, we call it a book, but like many books of the New Testament, it actually is a letter. Somebody can get that. And while they're at it, if somebody could affect the lights, that would be helpful. Thank you. It's a letter written by Paul back to the church in Philippi. He's imprisoned, probably in Rome, though it never actually says. He's, in, he's imprisoned, and he writes a letter back to this church in part to tell them how he's doing, in part to tell them what his future plans are, and in part to uh, send thanks to them for a gift that they'd sent him. But as always, this is the word of God through Paul to a church, and so that really it's about helping the people of God, the, this church, to be encouraged, to face some particular challenges, some of which are very similar to the ones Paul's facing at the hands of the, the world. So there's a word for them, and as was prayed earlier, a word for us here. He cares about these people and wants them to live well, to rejoice to walk with God, to face suffering, to testify to Christ. And towards that end, Philippians. A book that has a lot in it about joy and a lot in it about Christ Jesus. It's a good book. So we'll be looking at the first two verses this morning, which closely resemble a standard opening to a letter in that day. This is a letter, and it's structured like a letter throughout, and Ancient readers, when they would come to a document like this, would be very familiar with it and would have certain expectations. And part of how messages are communicated in the letters of the Bible is in how they hold to the form of a letter and how they break from the form. Some of the nuances of difference, some of the changes, and nowhere is that more clear than in the first couple verses of, of Philippians chapter 1. A pretty commonplace, ordinary salutation, but in Paul's hand, loaded up with theology and aiming to teach. So, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 to give us a little bit of a bigger picture of the, of the whole book, and then actually be focusing on verses 1 and 2 to draw out from them three points supporting this main idea. Here's my main point this morning. God has claimed and defined a people for himself. God has claimed and defined a people for himself. So a lot of what he says here tells us who we are. He's defining us. As we read along, we'll understand that's who we are. So let me read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 before focusing on 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always 
in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians chapter 1. I can make three observations. The first one, each of them are pretty simple. The first one, drawn from verse 1, we are, we are simply servants of Christ Jesus. We are simply servants of Christ Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. And now, of course, immediately I recognize that as soon as I say nothing more, nothing less, that you could use a bunch of other words to describe us, and I'm going to in the following points. So it's an oversimplification to say nothing more, nothing less. So why did I say that? To draw our attention to the very simple opening of this letter. Paul does something that I want to capture here. He describes himself in simple terms. In every letter that Paul writes, as is the form in letters, he begins by introducing himself. We begin letters perhaps with an address, perhaps with a date, and then dear so-and-so. We begin letters with the recipient, but they began letters with the author. So Paul starts with himself, and often an author would give a little bit of a description about who he is. So this is completely ordinary, completely common. But when Paul does this, in letter after letter, he puts a little bit of, of emphasis or a little slant. He loads up his introduction doing so to, in one way or another, sometimes prepare the audience, the recipients of the letter, to, to hear what he's going to say. He anticipates what's coming. He, he gives a little bit of, a, of the argument in seed form, or he, or he confronts them to, to prepare their ears for what's, what's going to be said. As an example, maybe you remember when we preached through 1 Corinthians, Paul has a lot of trouble with, for, with the church in Corinth. They don't acknowledge his authority. They don't listen to him. So how does it begin, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's pulling rank. I'm in charge because God said so. Listen up. That's how he begins a letter to a church that has a trouble listening to him. Called by the will of God to be an apostle. Doesn't say that here. Here, writing to a church, Philippi, that has always been very submissive to him, has always recognized his authority, has always been very supportive and loyal to him, and has different needs, he takes a different tack. This is one of the few letters which he doesn't even mention being an apostle. He just says, servant. And actually, very meaningfully, the word is plural. Paul and Timothy, servants. 
We're in this together. Now, if you read on, immediately he, he goes back to the singular. Timothy is not co-authored this letter. This is all from Paul. It's all first person. Singular. I, me. But he puts Timothy right here in the front. We are co-laborers, both of us, servants. We're in this together. Preparing them for something. Because who else is a co-laborer? with Paul and with Timothy. Did you catch it? We read. Verse 5. The Philippians are. Partners with him in the gospel. Verse 7. Partakers with him in grace, in his imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul and Timothy are in this together, and actually you guys are in this with me together. And if we are servants in this work of gospel ministry, what do you think that makes you guys? Servants with Timothy and with me. He's preparing them to hear something that he eventually is going to get around to actually commanding them in chapter 2. Be servants like Jesus. This is a defining reality from the very first line of the book. Whatever else may be true of us, this bottom level, first sentence, we are simply servants of Christ Jesus. And in fact, to put one more layer on that, the word servant actually could be translated, should be translated as slave. Now, the danger in that for us in an American audience is that we think of slavery and we think of American slavery and we think of race, and we think of violence, and we think of all kinds of wicked things. So we, in saying slave, we run an immediate risk of misunderstanding something. But in saying servant, we run a risk of misunderstanding also, because servant in our mind can sound like something that's voluntary or optional. We have the service industry. People who are servants for a job by voluntary employment. And they can organize, unionize, go on strike, quit, leave, take a different, different job if they want to. That's not the case here. So don't misunderstand either direction. This is not voluntary labor, nor is it wicked, oppressive, and racial. Servant, slave, the, the core of it is owned. First line of the book, owned. Bought and owned. Someone else possesses you to do his will. Servants of Christ Jesus. His wish is our command this is who we are. This is who you are if you are a Christian. Which means what for us as we face this piece of our identity? What, what, what do we get from that? Well, there are a lot of things that kind of are around the periphery of that. If, if you're a servant of a master, then in some ways your job is defined for you. What you do on any given day is told. It doesn't come from your own head. It comes from someone else. And also the resources to accomplish that are, are provided by someone else. So lots of things that being a servant tells us. But what's at the core? What's, at, what's right at the center of, of the idea of I am a servant, I'm owned by, I am beneath another? What's at the core of that? We get it in chapter 2, which we'll come to, obviously, in 
coming months. <laughs> I, I didn't mean it to be a joke. It, it, it'll probably take us. A, <laughs> it, it, we'll be there in a few months. It, it. In chapter two, he comes back to the issue and says, "Now commanding, let this attitude be yours, like that of Christ." Who though God, he's talking about Jesus now, who though God did not count equality with God, something to be held onto, that, that right to be known as and worship as God, something to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. There's the word. Oh, Paul and Timothy and us and Jesus. Servants, and we're supposed to be like that. What's the heart of that servant? Made himself nothing. Taken the form of a servant, and then one more step. Humbled himself to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Right at the, at the core of this idea about being a servant, being under someone who is in authority. Yes, you know what you're told to do. You've got some marching orders every day. Yes, the resources are provided by somebody else. But the heart of it is a make myself nothing. I am low humble, beneath. Simply a servant means simply owned by someone else and I humbly am beneath him and that is what is to characterize me. Rebellious, unsubmissive, insubordinate subordinates have a problem. Proper subordination is a humble, lowly, making nothing of myself, acknowledging my beneathness. That's what we are. That's what we are to be. Humble servants, simply that. Which may be a correction that provides a bit of a confrontation to some of us. I'm not the first person to, to mention the idea that Christians should be humble. Right? And I'm not the first person to point out the tragedy of proud Christians. Pride is the original sin. It's at the heart of what, of what led Satan into his rebellion and he was cast down in pride. He sows pride into Adam and Eve's hearts. Do not make yourself nothing. Lift yourself up and grasp at the, the divine. Become God. It's right there at the very beginning and it's behind everything else. It is, it is if... If we are simply servants, if, if humility is at the core of this, what in reality is at the core of so many of our hearts and so many of our lives, what sits behind every sin is this resistance to humility and this grasping at pride. Brothers and sisters, stop and ask yourself, are you, do you walk through life, do you live as a humble servant? That's, it's foundational. It's, it's very beginning. Line one. We tend to ask almost automatically, unthinkingly, what 
do I want to pursue today? What would please me? What is my agenda? What is my goal? And, and in some sense, yes, in some sense we have to ask questions like that because you've got to make a decision in every moment of every day. Yeah. The problem is when we ask those questions and think like that, as we so often do, distinct from, separate from, completely unconnected to the fact of serving a master. What I want to do today should be, what do you want me to do today? How I view my fulfillment today should be, how do you define me and what do you order my life to be about? A humility, an underness, a making of myself nothing, a giving up of my own agenda, my own goals, my own life, should be what we are about. Is it? So there may be a confrontation that might call you to some repentance. But I also want to offer to you, there is liberation in this. There is great liberation in being a servant in surrendered service to Christ. Think about this for a second. Jesus is our master and he sets the agenda and he provides the resources and is responsible for the outcome. And I humbly beneath him say, your wish is my command. I will follow you where you go. I will, prov- I will work with what you provide. I will pursue what you lay in front of me. And I will leave the results to you. There is a tremendous freedom in that. You don't have to make anything happen. He does. Absolutely, it it does not free us from decisions in every day, from actions every day. Of course not. But I... I certainly came to this in my life, and I think if you, if you follow this through, you can find it in your own life too. There is great burden in trying to figure out what should I be and what should I do and how can I make something happen. And there is great freedom in saying, you are God and you are responsible. Take, for instance, one simple thing that burdens many of us, the Great Commission. You better get out there and share your faith with people and bring them to Christ. That's how some people express the Great Commission. The Great Commission is God's job. Do you have a role in it? Absolutely. All of us absolutely have a role in it. And we see Paul in Acts 16 taking up his role in that. But there is great liberty in recognizing God is the one who leads. God is the one who opens hearts. God is the one that causes the word to run, to to find a purchase in someone's heart, to grow up and change somebody. God does that. Thank God I don't have to. Liberty. I'm just a servant. I'm not the one in charge. If he ordains great ease in life or great trouble, great fruitfulness in ministry or great persecution, 
If he sends sunshine or rain, puts us in attractive places or in Utah. (laughs) I said that on purpose because that's where this came around to me this week. I don't like Utah. I don't. What? 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 <laughs> yeah. I spend a lot of time wishing I was somewhere else. I'm simply a servant. You're simply a servant. And in the, the confrontational way, who asked you where you wanted to live? And in the liberating way, I will put you where you should be for my kingdom purposes, which are always good and which I always accomplish. Rest. Hear the liberation in that. If one believes. I'm simply a servant. If I have an evil master, I have, tr- I have a, a huge problem. If I have a good master, and do I? Do you? If I have a good master, then whatever it is he assigns to me will be for his and for my good. And I can rest in that. There's great liberty in it. I'm simply a servant under orders from someone who is incredibly wise and infinitely powerful and vastly good and full of love for me. And you. So perhaps you need to repent, but perhaps you need to rest in the fact that you are simply a servant of Christ Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. But of course there's more. And that's the second point then. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Middle of verse 1. Paul with Timothy writing, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The church officers there, elders and deacons. We know they're... Overseer is elder, we know that from a number of places in the New Testament. Acts chapter 20 is an easy place where Paul uses both of these words to describe the same group of people. They are elders who have been made overseers. Acts 20. There are not two separate offices, they are one and the same. Overseers are elders, and here are the deacons, the officers of the church that Paul mentioned separately to give them just a little bit of honor because they are to be held in honor. But he addresses all of them together, all of the saints at Philippi with the leaders. I'm talking to all of you. All of them together are saints. There are not saints and then non-saints who are leaders. They're all saints. Not special people, not sainted people, not anybody that somebody makes into a saint, Every single one of them in the church 
all of the saints at Philippi. The word saint comes from the word for holy, which is fundamentally a word about separation, about being distinct from. Separated from what is common or ordinary, what is, what is of the world and therefore of the sinful world is, is contaminated or impure. To be separated out from, to be set apart from, is to be made holy, to be sanctified, to be consecrated. These are all related words. To be holy. So to call someone a saint is to call her a holy one, set aside from the world to God one. Purified, no longer common, no longer worldly, a saint. Which, right away, if we think about that, obviously no human being, none of us, no, nobody here, nobody in Philippi, no one is completely purified, completely, utterly set apart to God and no longer contaminated by the world. Nobody is utterly, completely pure in our lived-out lives. That's quite obvious. If we just look around, we know I'm not set apart from the world completely. I'm not pure. I'm not completely uncontaminated, separate from this world, wholly devoted to God in my lived-out life. But there's something marvelous here, something incredibly important here at the beginning as he's telling us who we are. Our lived-out experiences, our lived-out lives here, and the lack therein is not what Paul has in mind. He's not thinking about that and not talking about that. He's using this language of all the people in the church, all Christians. Everybody. It's who we already are. Every person sitting in the pew or in the blue chair. If you're a Christian, every Christian is a saint, is a holy person, has a standing that is distinct from the lived out daily life. Here's a standing that is separate from this still sin-plagued lived-out existence in which we are not holy and are not pure and are not fully, completely consecrated. A separate one, a saint, pulled out from the world and in standing, holy and pure. Righteous. Every Christian, we are the saints, the holy ones of God. Think about that. Think about what that means. This is, this is not just a term he throws around. This has, this has centuries behind it. The holy ones of God. God has always, for centuries past, Paul, obviously Jewish, obviously a, a scholar, knew the Old Testament, and, and he's thinking along tracks of the Old Testament. God has always been about seeking out a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people set apart from the world, set apart to him, a holy people. And now that is you. That's what he's saying. God who himself is holy, 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 the one who is distinct, who defines what it is to be set apart from the world. This God who is holy was always for centuries, for millennium, was about pursuing a people to bring them to himself. The Holy One, a people drawn out from the contaminated world to be in his presence, pure, right, consecrated, 
drawn out to be worshipers, to be priests before him, a kingdom full of priests who would reflect back to him worship that is fitting of him and upon whom he could pour, shower, tremendous riches of his glory. He's been seeking to do that forever. That's you. Christian, saint, holy one. This is not just a name, this is a reality. It is an alarming reality. And it's who you are. Yes, you, you walk around, you live, you sit, you run, you lie down and sleep amongst a world plagued with sin. But more important than that, above all of that, more real than that, is the fact that you are a saint and you live even right now, drawn out from that in the presence of a good and holy and beautiful God. Glorious who are you? You are a saint. This has tremendous impact on how this saint lives here in this sin-cursed world. You do not live to shape up to become a saint, but because you are a saint, you live pursuing holiness now. Get the direction. Critical. You do not seek to live a holy life now to become one day when somebody votes a holy one. Whether it be God or other people. Because you have been made a holy one, you have a power that is at work in you that drives you into the world pursuing holiness. Critical that you get that order right. And if you get the order right, you'll find tremendous release and tremendous power in pursuing holy living right now because you are not in order to become. Very important. You struggle and you fight as a saint, not in order to become a saint. You struggle and you fight accepted already, welcomed already, brought near fully already, because you are a saint in Christ Jesus. Very important wording. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. There aren't any saints otherwise. Saints in Christ Jesus. Not saints in their own goodness or in their own worthiness, or their own righteousness, only in Christ, which is one of Paul's favorite phrases. says a lot about who we are and how we got there. A Christian is a person who's been set apart to God, been made holy. How? In Christ. So for a moment, there's a problem with this, which I'll, say, I'll talk about in a second. For a moment, think of the phrase, in Christ, like the phrase, in a balloon. The problem with this is the physical locality of it. There isn't any physical location that we go to get into Christ. But if you set apart that problem, you think of in Christ like in a balloon. There is air in the balloon and there is air outside of the balloon. And the air in the balloon is going to be different than the air outside of the balloon. Might have a different oxygen content, might have a different humidity level, might have other particles in it or not in it, might be a few degrees warmer or cooler. 
The point is that inside this sphere of the balloon, there is a contained, different, unique atmosphere that is different than the atmosphere right there. Air here and air here lives in a different world, a different reality. If it's a clear balloon, they can even see each other. But there's a difference there. To be in the balloon is a different existence. We who are in Christ are different. We've been set apart from the world, put into this balloon, and the different atmosphere in that balloon is the atmosphere of heaven. It's the atmosphere of Christ, of union with him. That's what this phrasing is about. It's not about physical location. It's about union. To be in Christ is to be united with him, to be in relationship, to be tied to, included in him, joined to him, to live with him. This one who is God in the flesh, heaven brought to earth, God living in me as I am in him. They're not physical realities, they're spiritual, supernatural realities. But it's what God explains to us, he uses this human language to explain to us something that he did. You've got to ask then, when, where, and how did that happen? I'm a saint in Christ. Wonderful that I am a saint, that I am set apart, and that happens in Christ. Well, what's that about? That's the heart and soul of what the gospel is. You're not in Christ from birth. You're not not in Christ from your own effort. You're in Christ. Say more about this in the third point, but we are in Christ. We are united to Christ when spiritually, supernaturally, Christ is joins us to himself, taking on to himself our sin nature, giving to us his righteousness. At the cross, he pays for our sin and claims us, makes us his. Again, it's not physical language. It's physical language, it's not physical reality. He joins us to himself when on the cross he claims us. And so then, traveling in the balloon, we go with him into the grave and we rise out of the grave with him. We've died to sin and we live with him to God now. It's the the work of the gospel at the cross. It's a supernatural work. It is a work for which we should praise Him and give Him great thanks. The cross, if you're a Christian, at the cross, He put you into Christ and in Christ pulled you out of the world, set you apart to God. A saint. A marvelous reality. You are a servant, 
and you are a saint. And thirdly, we are recipients of grace and peace. It's verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This sentence, or some close variation of it, is an extremely common opening for Paul's letters, and it fills what would be a standard third spot in any salutation, in the, in the opening of any letter. Every letter began, so-and-so, to so-and-so, and then the third part was greetings. Hi. Hello. Maybe a little bit more there, but... Greetings was the common way it was put. So, that's what Paul does. Paul, to my friends in Philippi, but Paul doesn't say greetings. Instead, he takes the word for greetings and changes it to grace. And the little, the little game here shows itself a little bit better in the original language because the word for greetings and the word for grace are spelled similarly and sound similar. So you're, if you're listening to it, initially you think he's going to say greetings, but he says grace. Oh, that's different. And then he adds in peace, which doesn't belong there. Peace comes from his Jewish past, shalom. Grace to you and peace. So he changes things, not saying greetings, but grace and peace. Grace first, let's think about that. Favor that is unconnected to what you have worked for and deserved. There's what you've worked for and deserved, and there's grace. Unconnected. Grace to you. This is your reality. You are a recipient of grace. And in one sense, we should say, in one first sense, so is every human being. God is a God of grace, and every human being walks around, yes, in a sin-cursed world, but taking advantage of the grace of God commonly, God's common grace, all the time, never acknowledging it, usually unaware of it, maybe stopping every, was it fourth Thursday in November, third Thursday in November, to say thank you, but maybe not even to say thank you to God, just to say thank you. But everything that for which we would say thanks, sun shining and rain falling and food growing and a country holding together and gravity still working. Everything that, that we would look at and say, it still is life. That's all a grace gift of God to all of the planet. But that's not what he has in mind. There is more grace that is vast and great for those of us who are saints in Christ Jesus. We have received saving grace that is contained in every step of the gospel. The fact that there is a gospel is great grace. 
The gospel comes from God to a world that is not seeking after him and reaching out to him and hoping somehow to have a little bit of a help up. It's coming to a world that is running fast away, pausing only to shake its fist at God. It is in rebellion. Every single one of us, all of the world, we start in the place of rebellion. But God decided to save, and in grace, Christ Jesus took on the form of a man, even of a slave, of a servant, submitting himself humbly even to death, death on a cross, that there might be a provision for sin. Because this rebellion against God, it it invites, it demands from God just condemnation. And so if God in grace wants to save, he has to provide a substitute to bear the condemnation, and he provides his own son gloriously. Grace to you that there is a gospel to speak of is grace. But more than that, he poured out specific, effective grace on his saints. Those whom he knew, those whom he knew beforehand, he determined to save and provided a gospel and connected the two of them and drew them out from the world into Christ to himself. Grace to you. And as Lydia sits in the congregation and hears this letter, she says, grace to me. I know exactly what that means. Grace to me. I was walking down to the river. This is from Acts chapter 16. I'm walking down to the river one day, and this guy walks up, and God opened my heart to pay attention to what he said. I didn't open my own heart. This is the text of Acts chapter 16. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Lydia hears this, I know what grace to me means. While I am a dead sinner walking away, he opened my heart, he opened my eyes, and I heard it, I saw it, I believed Grace from God fell on me, and I'm a Christian because of it. Great grace opened her heart, and everyone who is a saint, great grace has opened your heart to bring you back from the dead, to raise the dead to life, to give blind people eyes to see, to give rebels hearts that are soft and accepting. That is the grace of God. Grace upon grace upon grace to you. Common grace. The grace that provides a gospel and a grace that opens you to receive it. Grace to you and therefore peace. Notice how his language carefully divides them. It's not grace and peace to you. It's grace to you and peace because peace follows the grace. He doesn't just mean no war, peace as in no armed conflict. If you think of shalom, the Jewish shalom, you've got something bigger than just no war. You certainly have that. But you have something that is maybe approximated by the words wholeness and fullness and rightness and rest. wholeness and fullness and rightness and rest for you. 
A life that is at peace with God is increasingly at peace with God's people. A life that is in little foretaste now and one day will be completely a life of fullness and wholeness and completeness and rest and joy upon joy. Joy is a big word in this book. And the existence of shalom, an existence of peace, would include joy. It is like what heaven itself is, where God runs all through it, and everything that is divine characterizes every bit of our existence. There is no distinction from this is, this is like God and this isn't. It all is fully colored by God and all of our existence and all of the time that we spend there and all the things that we think about and all that we see in others and all that we enjoy as we commune with them, let alone as we gaze upon him himself, all of it will be characterized by shalom, by peace, by wholeness, by fullness, and by joy upon joy upon joy. All yours because grace to you. This is who you are, recipients of grace and therefore peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Son. From the two of them, not from one or the other. Sometimes Paul can use language that clarifies and its language puts a difference between the two because the Father is not the Son. They are distinct. But here, he puts them together and says both of them are the givers of this grace and the givers of this peace. This is divine grace that comes from the divine God the Father and the divine Son. This is divine heavenly peace that comes from the divine God the Father and God the Son. You, Christian, are a servant, and you are a saint, and you are a recipient of grace and peace. Know that, but oh, to live it, to live it. There is tremendous and wonderful truth here, but if it only only stays here in, in the realm of intellectual acknowledgement, there will be some blessings come to us as we've come to know these things, but to live it, to walk through today and tomorrow, not just remembering, but remembering. Not just knowing, but knowing. I'm a servant. Humble beneath you, whatever you ordain for me is good and fine, right. I happily submit to it. I'm a saint. I'm a sinner, yes. I'm a sufferer, yes. But I'm a saint. I have an existence in your presence. And I want to live there even while I live here. I want to live there. So I live with a mind caught up somewhere else constantly 
reflecting on the grace that's been poured out on me and the peace, the peace, the peace that God has made for me even a little bit now and is one day coming in fullness. I'm going to express a a hope that, oh, would God give you more grace to know these things, to live them. I mean, know them like know them, to live them and walk in them. And then I want to exhort you. The Bible talks about us as Christians and our need to take captive our thoughts and submit them to Christ. What that means, so I I plead and I I pray and I ask God, would you give grace to help these things to be real and us to live in them? But then I say to Christians, you have to take hold of yourselves. To take your thoughts captive. To talk to yourselves rather than to listen to yourselves. Woe is me, I hate this place. Or, no, that's unbelief. Self, why so downcast? Put your hope in God, whom you serve, who has drawn you into his presence and has poured out on you grace and peace. Take yourself in hand. Take those thoughts captive and submit them to Christ and all of this glorious reality. This is who you are. And praying, God, open our eyes to who we are. So, I plead with you and I plead with him. And I encourage you, plead with yourselves and plead with him that you would understand and you would live in this identity. Servants and saints and recipients of grace and peace. He has claimed you. He has identified you, defined you as that. That's who you are gloriously. Let me pray. God, help us. I plead with you now as I pray to you and come before you and say, please open our eyes and remind us of, convince us of these facts. This is who we are. Now, as we spend a few moments reflecting, Lord, would you speak to individuals here? Perhaps about one of these points in particular. I don't know, maybe all of them. Encourage your people and build them up Speak to them truth of their identity. Give them rest. Perhaps confront them. Perhaps encourage them. Whatever you know needs to be done, Lord, do that work now in us, I pray. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.